Today's episode is sponsored by Femex, Radix, and RSK. You'll hear more about them later in the episode. Hey everyone, this is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law, and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts, and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. Really excited today. I have Haley Lennon, uh, a partner at Anderson Kill, and who somebody recently described as, quote, the LeBron James of virtual currency. Um, <laughs> Haley, thank you for joining me. I've been looking forward to this one. How are you doing? Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. And thanks for bringing that quote up. <laughs> <to> anyone. <laughs> um, I, I, I was, you know, uh, pleasantly surprised by that, that compliment. Um, no, I'm really excited to be here and to chat with a fellow um, attorney in this space about everything going on in this crazy industry. Yeah, no, it's exciting times, particularly on sort of the legal side. And I know y- you personally are, um, you know, making a transition to professionally. So, uh, you know, for, for my listeners who might not be familiar with your background, um, one thing I usually ask my guests and I'll ask you is, how did you get into cryptocurrency? How'd you land in this crazy space that we all know and love? Yep. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I am an attorney by trade. I graduated law school in San Diego and pretty quickly moved in-house to a company called DollarX. And what DollarX did was wholesale currency exchange along the Mexico border. So it, it's just like traditional uh, currency exchange. And so while that didn't touch on crypto at all, the regulatory implications of like a money services business and needing money transmitter licenses and needing to have an anti-money laundering program, like the same framework and, and um, regulatory implications were there. And so um, about a year into my role there, Silvergate Bank, uh, that's also located in San Diego, started recruiting for a legal advisor to join their team to expand uh, their crypto banking practice. Um, And so for any of your listeners that aren't aware, for a very long time, it was very difficult for any crypto companies, exchanges, miners, even software developers that were associated with crypto to get a bank account. And so Silvergate, um, led by Alan Lane, their CEO, was sort of the first bank to say, why is this space so... um, why is there so much debanking and de-risking and fear of this space when really they're just money services businesses? And if we do due diligence on them, we should be able to bank them. So, so to answer your question, I, I got directly into crypto when I joined Silvergate and I was there for two years um, just helping to really um, analyze the major companies in this space and figure out who had an advanced enough um, compliance program and um, and team to work with in order to provide banking services to them. So were you just doing like, was Silvergate just doing holding USD and then offering kind of on-ramp, off-ramp services or was it like actual custodial services yeah. related to the storage of the crypto itself? Yeah, no. So like back in 2014, 2015, it was really before um, bef- definitely before banks were looking to custody crypto. And so really, I mean, the exchanges of the world were just having a really difficult time for one, even finding bank accounts just to do like payroll and pay rent, but definitely for exchanges that wanted to be able to store uh, their customers' fiat currency with a bank, um, no bank w- was interested in, in doing that. And so that's what Silvergate started with. They now have like something they call the Silvergate Bank Network, which is um, faster transfers between exchanges. But um, but at that time, the, a bank custodying crypto would have been out of the question. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and, you know, we'll probably get into more the regulatory banking stuff because there's some really cool stuff happening on that front, um, yeah. maybe a little later in the episode. But okay. um just curious then, so you were at Silver Bank, you said a couple of years and where'd you go after that? 
Yeah. So, um, so I was at Silvergate Bank for two years and then um, I started talking with Bitflyer, which um, Bitflyer is the largest crypto exchange in Japan. Uh, sometimes I call them the Coinbase of Japan because they kind of are like the household name there. And, um, and so they were looking to expand into the US. So I joined Bitflyer USA to develop their anti-money laundering program um, to get all of the money transmitter licenses and worked with New York Department of Financial Services to get the bit license there. Um, and so that was um, a really exciting opportunity. I mean, there's, you know, you could have a whole episode on, on Japanese exchanges and how, and how the years have been there in Japan for exchanges. Um, and so kind of bridging the gap between Japan regulators and, um, and U.S. regulators and um, expanding that organization to the U.S. was a, was a whole new experience. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I don't know the first thing about the regulatory landscape in Japan. Is it is it comparable? Is it stricter? Is it more flexible? How did you find um, that? It's just more it's more consolidated like um, into one. So the FS, Japanese FSA is the main regulator in Japan and they sort of I would consider them like the un, the umbrella regulator, whereas in the U.S. we have the SEC, the CFTC, we have state and federal. Um, in Japan, it's more consolidated. But at the same time, there are some aspects where I think that the Japanese regulation is stricter um, in part because they have experienced hacking incidences that we haven't in the U.S. as much. Um, and so, um, you know, talking with the FSA and then talking with New York DFS, um, New York like has their own focus on cybersecurity. So it was just interesting to see how two different countries kind of approach those topics based on experience. Sure. Yeah. No, I can imagine. I, I, I've had a, well, in my past life, I was involved in sort of regulatory schemes in mm -hmm. um, Australia and it was a very um, similar sort of case there where, you know, Australia is broken in the States, but for the most part, it's the federal regulator that has all the power. And yeah. here it gets really confusing, you know, with the different MTL licenses and the different federal agencies. It's sort of yeah. a, and I know the folks at Coin Center and Peter and Naraj mm -hmm. and all those folks are constantly talking and writing about those issues. And I'm happy to see there's some efforts on the federal level from the OCC to kind of consolidate some of those as well. But yeah, but, yeah, I think it's, I mean, it makes, it makes being a startup in the U.S. a lot yeah. harder. I mean, at, at least in, in Japan and some of these areas where there's more of a single or umbrella regulator like you know where to focus all of your efforts and like develop and you develop those relationships i mean developing relationships with 50 different um state regulators like is no yeah. is no small task no that's true there ought to be some sort of front door i mean you, you know i've had i've had people say oh i was i looked at fincen and we didn't meet the definition of a money transmitter and then we got an enforcement action against us in texas and it's like <laughs> Texas had a different standard for what an MTL was. And it just, yeah, it can, it can be real tough for it, for a startup to deal with that. And then there's bonding requirements for each state and all of the onerous applications and things. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm with you there. So you were at Bitflyer and then you went to Coinbase after that. Yeah. 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 So for the last year, um, up until a few months ago, I was with Coinbase. I, I joined Coinbase as regulatory counsel, um, I would say a big portion of my role there was managing the relationship with New York DFS just because Coinbase has their trust charter in New York and their bit license in New York. Um, and as many people listening may be aware, in New York, you really need to get their approval for any material, new products or services. So a lot of my role was bringing different um, products that Coinbase was trying to launch in their various um companies and, and departments and, and talking with New York about that. Um, and yeah, I mean, that, that is, uh, that company and, and their legal team, are, it's, it's a really impressive group of attorneys. So that was, that was a, that was an awesome, you know, transition to that team as well. For sure. Yeah. I, I actually remember now that you mentioned 
DFS signing off on each new crypto. I think I remember when Coinbase announced that you could trade Litecoin if you lived in New York and everyone was like, hooray. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it was definitely like, I mean, I had this sort of like running list of different coins that the listing team brought to me, different products that um, the trust company brought to me, different products that the exchange brought to me. And it was sort of just this like running list of, of questions and follow-up items from New York every week. Um, and so, yeah, as soon as I would be able to get something over the line, it always felt like a big accomplishment. And, you know, that, that's, that's this sort of like regulatory balancing act I'm sure we'll talk about today is like, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's good for a regulator to be, to want to be that informed on products, but it also, um, you know, it, it, it took a lot of my time up, but, sure. um, but it was, it was great. Well, good. And, you know, I think a lot of it too is folks like you and, you know, Coinbase and Gemini and the the heavily regulated exchanges that are working closely with the DFS have probably, you know, like when you walk through a snowy path, the first person to walk through has the hardest time, but then like the people behind it have a little bit of an easier time. So I'm sure like a lot of that effort has probably benefited the broader crypto community without them yeah. even really knowing it but yeah well thanks i mean it's it's a funny i mean i think attorneys in general and also ex- centralized exchanges have this sort of like funny role in the industry because at the heart i mean I've, someone like me who's been in it from the big you know 2014 like i'm very aware aware of this the like libertarian ideals and and the idea of like why do they need to KYC? Why do they need to know who we are? Like, you know, this desire for anonymity and privacy. Um, and then, you know, and there's this other side of like the centralized exchanges, um, the Silvergate banks that are working with their regulators and the Coinbase's and Gemini's and Bitflyers working with DFS. And, um, you know, from my perspective, it's actually been really exciting to see the regulators getting get up to speed on the space. I mean, know know a lot when now reg, you know regulators are now talking about like hot and cold storage. That those sort of conversations would never have happened like you know five six years ago. So, um, and I've definitely seen like regulators just being a lot like they are becoming more innovative. It may not be as fast as some of the industry would like, but you know, some of the conversations I was having with New York, um, you know, at Coinbase versus a few years prior at Bitflyer, they were completely different conversations. They were just much more advanced in terms of uh, topics of lending, of uh, staking, you know. Mm-hmm. The, so it, that, that's always exciting, at least from my perspective, to see is, is them uh, re- regulators getting more open to this space. Yeah. And that's good because everything moves so damn fast. I mean, now you look at like the DeFi stuff and mm-hmm. uh, like collateralized lending and, yeah, you know, yeah. it's like, Oh my God. Yeah. Um, yeah I'm, I'm sure that, I mean, I'm sure that there's, they're, they're never, the job's never done, you know, in-house attorneys roles are never done outside law firms are always learning. And, and so are the regulators that are trying to regulate the space. So yeah. yeah. And yeah, the, your, your point about sort of the tension between the privacy and the libertarian ideals versus like the regulator's job of ensuring, you know, the Bank Secrecy Act is yeah. being complied with and all of these other regulatory obligations that exist both from a state and federal, well, and a global level now with like FAFT and things. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, we're... it's a tough tension. Yeah, to me, like my goal in talking with regulators has always been to explain like that the effectiveness of a regulation should be the important thing. Um, you know, like we can obviously just like regulate the the hell out of like any industry and it'll on paper, it looks good. But but there's certain like regulations, like even candidly, like the travel rule and, and um, like FATF's like goals of of um, having that apply to the crypto space. Like when I see regulations like that, I, I think of the, how easy it is for, you know, for like what they're trying to prevent is a bad actor, but if it's that easy for a bad actor to get around an, a regulation, then it's not effective. And it actually is just burden burdening the people that are the, the companies that are doing it the right way and trying to comply. So yeah. I think that that's, that's part of like the role of, of regulatory counsel 
is um, is being part of the conversation with the regulators so that there's not all of a sudden this like regulation that just is burdensome on the industry and doesn't actually help prevent any of the sort of like illicit activity that that you know most people don't want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know I think. The more I see too, the more I'm like, well, maybe we can have our cake and eat it too. Like privacy isn't an inherently like bad thing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the DFS has uh, agreed to let Gemini list Zcash. And recently, you know, there's been an announcement that Gemini said you can actually send Zcash to a shielded address, which is, uh, to my knowledge, the first time that a regulator has okayed that either explicitly or implicitly. I'm not sure if they're, you know, if they weighed in explicitly on that, but Gemini announced last month that they're going to start allowing that. So, and then I think it was Coin Center who made the point that with some of these bank custody solutions of crypto, they may mm-hmm. actually be legally required to have some sort of privacy mechanics built into their custodial solutions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't think they're necessarily at odds with one another. Because, you know, a lot of transactions are private and that's okay. A lot of data is encrypted and that's okay. It doesn't necessarily mean it's illegal or illicit. It's just some people might not want everyone to know their business. Yeah, Um, Yeah, I've I've had some pretty interesting conversations with like um, members and founder um, of Zcash just about how encryption, you know, there was the same sort of like debate around encryption on the internet and like, for a while, you know, the government was sort of like, no, you can't have these encrypted encrypted sites. Like we need to be able to see into it. But then all of a sudden when there was like, um, like global threats of against us sort of privacy on the internet, all of a sudden encryption became this like important thing. And it's something that we all like are familiar with on, on the internet now. Um, and so when I've spoken with like Zuko and people from the Zcash team, like, I think there's a feeling that um, that it's the same here. It's like there's, you know, there are plenty of reasons why encryption and privacy are really good things and actually probably pretty necessary things in the long term. Um, but it's like finding that once again, it's finding that balancing act, and it's also educating the regulators because if if a regulator just hears encryption, private, anonymous, and all and all these buzzwords just in their head ring like oh my gosh, if it's a terrorist sending this currency, we'll never know. Well, yeah, of course that's going to like, you know, alarm people. Um, But if you sit there and explain, um, you know, double knowledge proofs and the shielding and unshielding and and view keys and everything else, the the regulators start to say, oh, I see. Okay. So it's optional or this or that, or, you know, this is how it works. So, yeah, it's, uh, I agree with you. I think, I, I, I do think that there's a way in which the space is going to find sort of a happy middle ground eventually. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I had a conversation with Peter Van Valkenburg and that'll probably be out by the time this one comes out. So some of the yeah. folks may have listened to that. He's on the board of the Zcash foundation. And one of his points was, you know, when you, when the, when the internet first started, you'd enter your credit card on Netscape and basically anyone could see that data, which is insane. Um, And it's just, it's a bad result. It's bad for consumers. It's bad for businesses. It's bad for regulators in the economy. And I'd make, I'd make a similar argument that cryptocurrency needs some sort of privacy solution. I don't know if it's layer one or layer two or what it is, but, you know, just having everyone's transactional data completely transparent, I'm not sure is a very good result or Yeah, but we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. Um, so I took us off on a tangent on privacy. I apologize. I just can never resist a conversation about privacy. I mean, it's an interesting one. It's a, yeah, no problem. Yeah. So now you're, uh, you recently moved to Anderson Kill, right? Yeah. So this is, it's my third week. So I'm actually <laughs> getting going. Um, I obviously had been like in-house for many years. And so I joined Anderson Kill as partner, which I'm super excited about, meaning, you know, I really have control over like the clients I bring in, the cases I'm working on. 
Um, I'm joining two other well-known um, attorneys in the space, Stephen Pally and Preston Byrne. Um, so S Stephen's focusing on like more of the litigation and also in cyber um, cybersecurity insurance, whereas and Preston is more on the corporate uh, merger and acquisition transactional work. Um, and yeah. so I'm pretty, I'm really excited about joining the team because I'm sort of like the third, the third member bringing a new focus in, which is the um, regulatory relationships, licensing. Um, I think earlier you mentioned the OCC. Um, so they now have a trust charter, Wyoming banking charter. There's all these sort of new things popping up as well as the money transmitter licenses and bit license that I've be, you know, been very familiar with for the last you know, five, six years. So, so yeah, I'm, you know, this is my uh, first time sort of like back in the law firm world since I was an, a young attorney post-law school and I'm super excited to, to get going. Sure. Welcome back to living your life in six minute increments. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about, I know the first week I was like, oh, this, yeah. Yeah. Yep, but, um, yeah. but what I will say is it, it, it's a little reminiscent of my Silvergate bank days where, um, when you work at a firm where you have multiple clients rather than being in-house at a Coinbase or a Bitflyer, you start to get this like cool sort of bird's eye view of the whole industry. I mean, I remember at Silvergate Bank, the reason I fell in love with this space is that I started seeing all these exchanges that were, you know, doing, doing the regulatory mapping in their own way. And, you know, like one exchange might be taking this approach, one might be taking that, starting to see like these other um, types of companies, open, you know, opening up. And I'm excited at Anderson Kill to start developing a, you know, a network of clients where I, I go back to that sort of like bird's eye view where I can see what regulatory issues are really starting to take form, what licensing strategies are companies moving towards um so i think i think it's going to be a really exciting thing um it's <laughs> i've been obviously onboarding during this crazy pandemic uh and the election is still you know kind of tapering down um chaos wise so it's been a it's been a crazy few weeks but <laughs> it's going yeah. good I believe it. Well, um, well, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I know, I know Steve personally. Um, and I've certainly known, is it Burn or Brian? Preston Burn. Burn. That's right. So I, yeah, I've known Preston on Twitter for a long time and yeah. it's funny watching their like political debates. They're like the odd couple on Twitter. Yep. It's awesome. <laughs> I, know, I, I like tweeted a week or two ago. I was like, okay, I already have my token phrase. It's I'm staying out of this one guys. Cause whenever they like start going about different opinions, I'm like, look, I'm not going to be like the swing vote here. I'm just going to let y'all like, go, go at it. That's probably smart. Yep. <laughs> awesome. And I saw that, um, you were giving them a little bit of a hard time about Google Docs. I'm actually in. I'll, I'm going to side with Pally on this one. I I can't stand Google Docs. But you're going to be the swing boat. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I know. You made me use Google Docs for the outline of this, actually. But 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 I will say it worked really well. So maybe yeah. I'm just being difficult. Well, I, I'm starting to convince Stephen. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Just I think I think coming from you know various startups, um, you know, when I joined, I was like, hey, like, do we have Slack or how do we communicate? Like, oh, by email. I was like, oh yeah. And then yeah, just like emailing back and forth, Word docs instead of Google. I just you know, I, I, I guess I'm just used to like these very like instantaneous discussions and edits, but, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, I, someone, someone joked the other day that they wanted to see like me, Steven and Preston, like on a reality TV show, because we definitely <laughs> do have like our own like personalities and like just ways of just ways of doing things. And that, I mean, that makes it fun. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd watch that. So we have, uh, we have marmots and we have herring, right? So <laughs> yeah. marmots are Preston and herring is, Steven, do you have like a spirit animal or are you? Oh gosh. Um, well, I actually, I had talked, I had talked with them about it and I actually like a lot of people say I look like a bear or like, <laughs> I like to sleep. And then they were like, you can't be a bear. You could be a bull. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll be a bull. And like, so I don't really know. I mean, the herring obsession of Pally's is like, 
it came from that there was some like ICO about another fish. Um, oh, right. I sort <laughs> like, of remember that. That's where it came from. But uh, I definitely am not like, I won't eat herring. And so I, I still have to figure out my like spirit animal, I suppose. We'll, we'll go with bull. We'll okay. Go with- yeah. And I mean, being part of the crypto community, you have to be bullish. So that, I know that's as soon as I said bear, they were like, what? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So you mentioned the election and the uncertainty. I mean, you're in regulatory. What do you, what do you think? I mean, do you think the election is good for crypto? Do you think it's a non-event? I mean, I think crypto is tends to be relatively nonpartisan, which is probably yeah. good. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, what are your I mean, thoughts? I agree with that. Like, I mean, the thing that I think we all love about crypto is like the fact that it actually isn't reliant on the government. It, I mean, it, it is and it isn't, right? Like regulation matters and the people um, that are helping to like create the regulations and their view on crypto matter. But at the end of the day, like, you know, no matter what happens with an election, like we saw a few weeks ago, like crypto is still going strong, right? It's actually going, going up. And um, so, you know, I mean, Trump was an interesting president just with his sort of like um, very outspoken Twitter handle. And like, you know, he he kind of had that like one day rant about Bitcoin. But then after that, like we never really heard anything like that um, didn't seem like there were other departments that were really like anti Bitcoin. Um, so it was really just this like one Twitter rant from Trump. And then, you know, like Biden hasn't really even said, he hasn't really said anything one way or another. Um, I did read about the, uh, the former CFTC um, uh, person that's my, that may be being brought in um, yeah. to like, cons- like consider tapping into him, his experience. And I know that he's really crypto like, pro crypto he taught a course at mit um and gary Gary gensler oh yeah gensler and uh yeah and and like and i remember reading like a coin desk article last december where he actually was like calling bitcoin a catalyst for change and like he just has Mm -hmm. a completely different um tone about about crypto than than some you know potentially some other individuals that have have been um you know, working, representing the space. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think that there are plenty of individuals within the government and within, you know, the regulatory agencies that like allow licensing I, to me are the ones that really matter. Like not that really matter, but like really impact um, how, how the laws and regulations are going to impact the space. And so, you know, I, I'm very, going back i'm very bullish on how <laughs> how the us is approaching the space i, I you know I, clearly for for years there's been this um this sort of theme of like the us falling behind and in many ways i i agree with that i mean i think there's other countries that have taken more, a more aggressive approach or like their government themselves are actually exploring um you know adopting cryptocurrency or uh, government-backed coins, but but I, I see the you know we have Hester Pearson within the uh, SEC crypto mom, and you know now if Gary Gensler <laughs> joins, like I think it I I see a bright future for us. I've used a lot of exchanges over the years, and they all seem to have their problems, from a lack of volume to bad buggy UI, or the exchange crashing when Bitcoin makes a big move. Until now, that is. Femex is a new derivatives and spot exchange launched last November by a group of former Morgan Stanley execs. Femex sports lightning fast transactions, the ability to handle many transactions at once so you don't need to worry about it crashing during big moves, deep order books, and real verified volume. They have several different trading pairs and leverage options. They also have low trading fees and a killer ref plan. Be sure to use this URL for my welcome bonus, Femex. P-H-E-M-E-X dot com slash A slash bully. Again, Femex dot com slash A slash bully. Check it out. Today's episode is sponsored by Radix. In the current financial system, transactions are slow, inefficient, and expensive. 
and even supposed decentralized finance platforms, or DeFi for short, like Ethereum, were not designed to support the number and speed of transactions necessary to scale DeFi. Ethereum's solution for this is sharding, which results in scalability at the cost of composability. Radix is a new cutting-edge layer one platform for DeFi applications. Radix is specifically designed for DeFi, providing speed, security, and scalability. Radix uses its own next-generation consensus system called Cerberus, which has achieved over 1 million transactions per second in recent testing. Try doing that on Ethereum. Learn more at radixdlt.com. That's R-A-D-I-X-D-L-T.com. The DeFi revolution is the next big opportunity in the crypto financial market. RSK, the Bitcoin-based smart contract platform, is hosting exciting, secure, and rewarding apps that allow you to trade, lend, and borrow on the most robust smart contract platform, powered by more than 60% of Bitcoin's computational power. For the holders out there, why let your Bitcoin just sit there when it could be earning you money? Put your Bitcoin to work, trade without selling, spend without selling, lend and borrow on the most trusted network in the world. Yeah, it's interesting too. I read recently that um, Sam, the CEO and founder of FTX, was mm-hmm. one of Biden's biggest donors. I think he donated like $5 million. And I, I know that. that's not the way things work, right? You don't give money and then immediately get something in return. But yeah. at least, you know, he might have some influence or some ability to talk to the administration and tell them about the benefits of crypto. So that's, yeah. that's encouraging. Um, yeah. And I think this, I mean, one thing that I think the industry has done a really great job on, and you, you already mentioned coin center, but like there's the blockchain association, there's um, the virtual commodities association, um, even an associated called Adam that just recently announced like the, um, Ripple X X is like head of um, public relations and regulatory joining um, joining as their Adam CEO. Like all these working groups in this space, I've always found to be very impressive because what that is doing is like bringing a consortium of voices to talk with with the regulatory agencies and the you know members of the government that that either have have opinion set or are able to shape the the industry and so especially with those sort of key industry working groups i i think that those i think that they'll continue to be a lot of good conversations yeah no i agree i mean uh, I suppose on the other hand, there's been discussions of like Elizabeth Warren being the head of treasury mm-hmm. and, you know, she's been critical of crypto in the past. I think there was a hearing in 2018 where she was very critical of crypto, particularly sort of the ICOs mm-hmm. and their what she viewed as kind of fleecing of retail investors in the U S and so you know, it'll be, it'll be interesting. On the other hand, she's very critical of banks and, um, you know, Facebook and stuff. So who, who knows? And I suppose the current treasury secretary is not like a huge friend, uh, crypto either. It's, I guess, you know, almost at odds diametrically with what they're supposed to do. Um, so that, that'll be interesting. And, I don't know how that'll all shake out, but it is fun to think about, well, how does it, how will a new administration impact kind of the regulatory schemes and mm-hmm. setups in the U S yeah. I mean, and I, I think, I think like to, to end this topic, I would just say that like, you know, if anyone wants to find things to criticize within the crypto space or really any new technology space, like there are things to criticize. Like, you know, I've been at, when I joined Silvergate 2014, 2015, like there wasn't even, there was only Bitcoin. There was no such thing as an ICO. Like the SEC and the Howey test hadn't even been like um, connected to cryptocurrency as the test to use. Um, now fast forward, like, yeah, were there some ICOs that, that you know, harmed investors or, uh, and turned out to just be scams? Like, yes, for sure. Um, but I guess my point is just when there's technology, there's sort of like, there's good parts of it and there's bad parts. Like if you look at, 
self-driving vehicles. I mean, there needs to be regulation and there's a lot of like risk and how those cars operate and if they cause a car accident or, you know, like there's always going to be those risks and and maybe slightly negative impacts of new technology. But I think that where we're at now is that the, the, um, the potential and the benefits of cryptocurrency are really being better understood as well. So, so we'll continue to see sort of maybe these two different extremes in of opinion. Um, and then we'll finally find that middle ground. Sure. Yeah. And it's interesting too. Uh, I might be risking a tangent here again, but I, I sort of find it interesting to think about how Bitcoin sort of going off and doing its own thing now, almost like Bitcoin sort of now viewed as a digital store of value, like almost like a digital gold. And then you have Ethereum and the sort of DeFi stuff that's trying to create this platform to reinvent banking. So like, it's almost like they're kind of going separate directions, um, which is good, I think, and sort of broadens the crypto community. It, It probably makes a regulator's life a little more difficult because they're now dealing with multiple topics under the the broad, like you said, in 2014, it was just Bitcoin. So now there's all of these novel products and use cases that they have to grapple with. Well, and then when, and then when one of these novel use cases, or let's not even give them that much credit, like when, when an ICO that just ends up being a scam happens, like then that gets like, then there's just this broad, you know, topic of cryptocurrency and like, you know, comparing a a Mm -hmm. fraudulent ICO to Bitcoin is like, you're comparing two completely different things, but for, you know, some regulators or like, you know, clickbait news articles, it's easier to just say crypto. Mm -hmm. Um, And then all of a sudden people have a misconception of the space. So yeah, as there, as there starts to be more of these sort of like sub sections of, of, crypto or virtual currency like hopefully the like legitimate use cases and um you know like sort of the og like purpose of of some of these cryptocurrencies remains remains the focus yeah so let's uh let's dive into some of the more sort of regulatory bits Uh, earlier you mentioned silvergate and um kind of how banking is evolving in the crypto space and it seems to be picking up steam recently. Um, and one of those items is Brian Brooks, your former boss being promoted at the OCC as head of the OCC, which is the office of comptroller of currency, which is the, the federal agency in charge of um, federal banks. So I, I thought maybe you could just spend some time about like, what's going on at the OCC as well as on the state level on the banking custody um, licensing side of things there, because I think it's really exciting and it's sort of, it's, it can be a little technical, so people might miss it, but it's very important, I think. Yeah, it is. I mean, so yeah, Brian Brooks, I mean, I can't really think of a more impressive person to have, um, to be at the OCC, but to have had like as a representative within the um, crypto space. So Brian Brooks was chief legal officer of Coinbase at my time. Uh, we worked very closely together, and um, and he joined the OCC really in the middle of the you know pandemic because of the economic crisis that's really uh, evolving as a result of of uh, shutdowns and everything. Um, but Brian obviously from his time at Coinbase and even before that has his own views of, of cryptocurrency. And I think that he always viewed um, the OCC as, as being able to clarify that uh, the same way that banks forever have been able to have safety deposit bo- boxes. I mean, for a long time, people have been able to use a safety deposit box to store things of value. So one of the first things, well, one one thing he did early on after joining the OCC this year is, you know, release guidance saying, hey, national banks, like, just to clarify, we're not, we're not like releasing new, you know, rules or regulations, but we're clarifying that the same way a bank can custody something of value, banks can custody cryptocurrency and crypto assets. And they also are able to provide banking services to any 
businesses as long as those businesses are lawful. So in that sense, I mean, for one, I think the OCC is trying to say, hey, national banks, you can do what Silvergate did, you know, four or five years ago, six years ago, start start providing just simple bank accounts to crypto companies. But the the bigger thing that they were announcing is, you know, you you can also feel comfortable knowing that the authority granted to you uh, from the OCC to be a national uh, trust charter, national bank includes the ability to custody crypto assets. And that's the first time, you know, like I said, it's not new regulation, but it's the first time the OCC has ever said anything like that. So that was a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then the OCC later, you know, a month or two later came out with additional guidance that said, you know, that they could also support um, stable coins. As, and, you know, they, they, he, they laid out some restrictions to that, like one, one-to-one backing and um, having it be tied to a single currency. So there were, there were ways in which he sort of limited, uh, they limited the scope of, of stable coin support, but, um, but that also was pretty exciting news. So um, currently, I, you know, I haven't heard of any uh, crypto companies that have like gone for the OCC, um, there's either the OCC trust charter or the OCC um, special payments charter um, that's focused more on like national banking and payments. And, and so, you know, uh, I won't, I won't be surprised if we start to see some crypto companies and possibly exchanges like going that direction because it creates, it's like we were talking about at the beginning, like more of a federal umbrella um, for the space and it, it may be able to um, eliminate the need to, you know, get these state by state licensing. Um, I guess the only other thing I would add is like the OCC's guidance has not been met by like state uh, and other regulators, like without a little bit of disagreement and some, some regulators have said, you know, that, that this actually isn't, um, you know, isn't what the OCC is able to do. Like it's not the OCC's job to define what a bank is, but, but on on the other side, it seems like what they're really just doing is, is clarifying that banks can keep up with evolving technology. Sure. And so I, I'm not a banking attorney per se, but my understanding is that banks can either be regulated at the state level. You can get basically like a state bank charter or you can get a federal one. And so the OCC's guidance would only be applicable to banks that are registered as federal institutions. Is that right? That is right. Um, The only thing, like the only sort of intricacy is that I think, and I'm pretty sure about this, and I think it's sort of still evolving. I I think the OCC is interested in understanding, um, even though the the organization would not be a state, um, a state level bank, they still obviously might be like st- um, formed and located in a specific state. So the OCC might look to that state's sort of like capital requirements and that sort of thing to determine um, what what sort of capital requirements the OCC may look to. Gotcha. Okay. And then on the other hand, I suppose we're seeing um, certain states, Wyoming in particular, really forge forward with the state-specific regulatory schemes that are um, open and accepting of cryptocurrency businesses. So uh, do you mind talking a little bit about that, about you know Wyoming's efforts to expand crypto banking and how that plays against the, the federal regulators? Yeah, I mean, I think what we're, how I'm viewing this is we're seeing regulators in general becoming a little bit more open and even I might say like aggressive in embracing the support of cryptocurrency companies. And so while we have the OCC issuing these um, statements about national banks and what they're able to do, um, there was recently news that Kraken was um uh, given, you know, a, a bank charter through Wyoming. And so what Wyoming's really saying, um, and I, I think that it's still sort of open for discussion, but Wyoming's saying, you know, we're granting these uh, special purpose um, depository institution 
um, licenses in Wyoming that will allow a crypto um, exchange to operate as an exchange and really as a you know bank uh, across the United States. And that would also like take, um, there would be a reciprocity with other states. Um, I haven't been as involved in, in that process um, to date, but, but the impression I get is that, that Wyoming asserts that that would also take, take place of this needing to have state-by-state -state licenses. Um, and so I think there's now been two of those granted, and I know a few other uh, companies are going for that Wyoming um, license. Yeah, so I think Marco at Kraken and then Caitlin Long at, what yeah. is it, Avandi Bank? Mm -hmm. I forget the name of it, but yeah, yep. I, yeah, I'm familiar with that too. Well, that's that's great. And so I suppose the ultimate outcome of that would be um, a, a consumer could then have like a debit card with like a Kraken debit card, <laughs> is that right? Where they could hold their their funds and then be able to access them directly from Kraken. I think, I mean, yeah, I can't speak to, to Kraken or like the debit card aspect, but I think the, the goal with any sort of like crypto bank, and that's the direction that it seems like we're going in is like the idea of a crypto bank is right now you go to a Coinbase, you're going to need to have your, you know, you have your Bank of America account, you connect it to Coinbase, you send a, a wire ACH in, um, the money's there then you can go buy crypto. But if, if a, an exchange is a crypto bank, then your fiat's there already. Um, you don't need to like connect anything. Your fiat's there. You can buy crypto. You can sell crypto. The fiat that you receive by selling your crypto would just go into that same bank account. So it sort of puts everything under one roof. That's how yeah. I understand it. Um, I mean, so, so yeah, I think that we're, we're seeing this like direction of federal and states trying to go more towards the crypto banking route. Um, I think the other big news is the, um, you know, I just mentioned like a, connecting a bank account to a Coinbase. There's also was the PayPal news recently. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that, that's like, it's a whole nother topic, which is, you know, to date to become an exchange or to support the buy and sell of crypto to any like you know across the country but especially in new york you would need to go get the bit license um and so like i think you know most people listening i'm sure are familiar with the news of paypal i actually saw the day that i think some people actually can see the option now in their account i haven't logged in yet to see if mm -hmm. i have it yeah, I but, saw um, people have access yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, I need to check because I mean it, it's super exciting. But but like what it, what may have gone, what may some people may have missed is that the way PayPal is launching that service, at least in New York, is actually through a conditional bit license, which is something that New York DFS proposed back in June. So in June, New York DFS sort of said, "Hey, you know, to date we've been granting bit licenses." Um, we know that that process is, it takes a while. Sometimes it's difficult for, you know, smaller startups. Clearly PayPal is not a small startup, but, um, but we're, you know, here's, here's a, a proposed framework for conditional bit licenses where you can, a, a company can partner with someone, another company that has the bit license, um, sort of through a like principal agency relationship. And what they're doing is sort of relying on the bit licenses um, expertise in complying with New York DFS. So, um, you know, I, I can't like, I, I don't know the inner workings of, of the situation with PayPal, but what they, they rely, they relied on, um, Paxos. It used to be it bits bit license. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so they have, you know, between those two parties, they likely have some sort of, um, intercompany agreement about how that, relationship works, what PayPal is able to rely on Paxos for, um, and that will allow PayPal to operate in New York in the interim while it, um, while PayPal, you know, eventually works to obtain a, a full bit license rather than just a conditional bit license. That's great. So, well, yeah, that yeah. goes back to your point earlier about the DFS trying to be more flexible and, um, 
make yeah. easier options. Yeah. I mean, I actually like probably need to take some time to personally think about what, what direction I feel like we should go regulatorily. I mean, in a lot of ways, there's a lot to be said about a crypto bank that sort of takes like that preempts these state by state requirements. Like, I mean, as someone who came from Bitflyer and Coinbase, I know how difficult it is to like maintain <laughs> licenses in every state. Um, but there's also something to be said about how, like how well New York has tried to, to understand this um, industry and um, sort of like protect consumers on a, on a very state focused level. Um, so, you know, there's kind of pros and cons, but it'll be interesting to see like what, what ends up being the path forward for some of these major exchanges now. Do you think, so one thing I get a little bit confused about is the idea of preemption. Um, and yeah. you know, if, if, if an entity goes through the OCC and they get this special purpose trust charter, I suppose that would preempt the obligation to get the New York bit license. Is that your understanding as well? Or would that be dependent on the services? I, I mean, that is the, I think that is the goal. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that all, I, I think that, you know, the OCC, Wyoming, New York, I, you know, I don't think that this is the la like sort of end of the conversation. There may very well become some litigation or lawsuits or, or like sort of um, letters amongst the different regulatory agencies to try to understand preemption and, and, and what, what like legal grounds the, the various regulators feel um, supports preemption because, yeah. you know, I, I don't know regulator that's taken time to um, regulate this space and, and focuses on consumer protection, like will want to, um, will want to sort of hand over control very easily. And so I think that, I think that's where we stand today is sort of seeing where, where this all will lead in terms of preemption and, and how it will actually all shake out. Yeah, because there, there was litigation that's already ensued from the OCC FinTech charter, I think. I think states were saying, wait, hold on, like, you guys don't have the authority under the Congressional Act that authorized your agency to even promulgate this advisory yeah. opinion or whatever they issued it under. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if states push back on their authority there, too. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think there's more, there will be more news around this area, but, but regardless, I do think that the OCC and Wyoming, I mean, I think that the efforts they're making in the space to, you know, not only the preemption aspect, but also just this idea of a crypto bank isn't, is pretty incredible. I mean, it's not, it's not somewhere I, I'm impressed that we're, mm -hmm year, you know, within six years of me being at Silvergate. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, <laughs> I didn't think when I started in 16 that we'd be talking yep. about crypto banks four years later either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, cool. I know uh, one thing you mentioned earlier was like, so the U.S. gets a lot of heat about being overly prescriptive in their regulatory processes and to the point where it's even driving companies away or the argument is or that you know folks have to engage in some sort of regulatory arbitrage i know i saw recently that there was an article about um binance's efforts to maybe do some regulatory arbitrage i read that ripple's considering moving to the uk because of the us's regulatory environment do you have any sort of general thoughts on on that and um, how regulators may be able to make the U.S. continue to be sort of a, a place where entrepreneurs want to want to set up shop. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I'd say that you know the last few topics we've touched on to me represent regulators' understanding and efforts to to resolve the issues that have um, companies look to, you know, the, like you said, regulatory arbitrage. I mean, a good example is, you know, while New York DFS is proposing this conditional bit license, um, Kraken, who very vocally, you know, sort of rejected the bit license and said, we'll take our business elsewhere, has gone to Wyoming. So in a way, there's already like, there's like some 
regulatory arbitrage or regulatory mm -hmm. movement movement happening in the U.S. like in a yeah. very in a very um, you know legal and appropriate way. I mean, Kraken can obtain a bit license if they want, or they can go get the Wyoming uh, banking charter, or they could go to the OCC. So. So that's sort of like, I, I'm seeing some of that in the US as is, um, globally, definitely. I mean, I think that any exchange or company that has multiple jurisdictions has to think through, you know, what products are um, sort of approved or supported in the US and what other jurisdictions they might be supported in if they're not in the US. I mean, um, you know, in terms of like finance, Ripple, um, like, you know, there's something to be said, like, I mean, unless there are ways in which using different jurisdictions, regulatory approach to the space is, is, is legitimate. I mean, you, you, you can do that. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope and I feel like U.S. regulators have you know, for a few years now heard this idea of you're stifling innovation. We need to move stuff elsewhere. I mean, um, I think the SEC has sort of explicitly said that, like we know when we're moving as fast as we can, mm -hmm. but we also like, um, you know, I think, uh, I, I know the SEC has been pretty blunt about like, we're, we're slow because we need to be, we need mm -hmm. to think through all these implications before we start pulling regulation back. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I've heard over the years, too, is like, so the U.S. tends to be the most prescriptive, but they're ultimately viewed as kind of the adults in the room. And yeah. um, other countries look to the U.S. for guidance on these issues. So moving slow, like you said, isn't always a bad thing, because if they move fast and screw something up, mm -hmm. then it's it's real bad, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean. I'll say like at my time at Bitflyer, um, because I joined when we were, you know, the U.S. office was still four or five people. Um, I was very involved in our EU and Japan, like conversations with regulators. And I, I mean, there were often times where, where Japan or EU was asking me, how does New York DFS approach this thing? Or how do they examine you for this part? So I do think that there's something to be said about like, yeah, maybe right now there's, there's jurisdictions abroad that are, you know, seem more crypto friendly or where you're going to move, but maybe they're kind of taking note from the U S and eventually they're going to start rolling out these, um, you know, cybersecurity type requirements or, um, or increased anti-money laundering requirements or things like that. So, you know, and even, even SEC implications or consumer protection implications. So, you know, I, I think, I think there's something to be said about the companies that have, have started here. I mean, I, I think that, you know, Coinbase, Gemini, some of these companies that are founded in the U S and, have decided to stay here. Like, I, I think that that will work out in their favor long-term that, you know, what, whether mm -hmm. they're, whether they merge or are acquired by another company or they sort of are able to change their regulatory uh, approach and suddenly become a crypto bank or OCC <laughs> charter, you know, that it'll be really exciting. Sure. Sure. Well, uh, I, looks like we're almost out of time and I, I want to give you a chance to, you know, say, tell our, tell my audience what else you're working on these days. Do you have any other projects or things going on? Yeah. I mean, because of how recently I joined Anderson kill, that's obviously my big focus. Um, you know, anyone listening who, uh, has any sort of like litigation or, you know, transactional or regulatory questions, would love to hear from you. I um, before Jan joining Anderson Kill, I also started started being a contributing writer for Forbes. So um, one of the articles I published a while back was actually about the OCC, and I'm working on an article right now. So you know, I hope to continue to um, to sort of like help keep everyone up to date on all the regulatory stuff going on because it, it's a, almost a full time job keeping up with it as is, and so. Um, hopefully my, um, my time at Anderson Kill and my articles at Forbes will, you know, continue to help 
keep everyone up to date and and seeing where where the industry goes great awesome well this has been a really good conversation Haley. i really appreciate your time um thank you for having me it's really i'm excited about your podcast i've been enjoying the first few episodes i look forward to um the the next coming ones coming out and i really appreciate you having me all right thanks a lot Haley. take care bye Hey everyone, thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at BullyESQ to continue the conversation. See you next week.